your dreams can be your reality. You all, time isn't real. Okay, that is fucking crazy. Spirituality, manifestation, travel, money, entrepreneurship. Welcome to In My Non-Expert Opinion. I'm your host, Chelsea Wright. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to In My Non-Expert Opinion. I'm your host, Chelsea Rife, and you are hearing me now live from Spain. I am on a rooftop right now of the hostel I'm staying at in Malaga, Spain. This is the first time I've been here. I am so excited. I'll be in Spain for a few more days before my sister comes and joins me in Europe and we go on a little Euro trip. And if you're confused why I'm in Spain and what I'm doing, I highly recommend you go back to last week's episode and check in of why I'm traveling right now. I am adjusting to a new chapter in life of being single, being abroad, and I'm trying to figure out where I want to live, what my next steps are, and there's a whole slew of paperwork, of things to figure out. There's there's a lot to figure out for my next steps, so I decided to take a few weeks off to just eat, pray, love, and do it with my sister who's going to come visit me, and I'm really excited about it. So... I am right now, like I said, on the rooftop of a hostel. So if you're hearing things in the background, whether it's noise or people or birds, it's because I'm on this rooftop. I truly don't have anywhere to record right now. Like I don't have a lot of privacy. So we're giving this a go. So if you've been tuning in for the last few months, I've been doing a lot of solo episodes mixed with some guest ones. And over the summer, I recorded with some incredible, incredible women from nutritionists to spiritual healers to astrologists. I mean, I've talked to so many amazing people and you're going to hear those interviews for the next few weeks. So today's interview is with Jordana, my nutritionist. Oh my gosh, you're going to love, love, love this episode. And I mean not only love, I think you might want to get a notebook and pen because she was saying stuff that even though I work with her, I was like, wait, what? I didn't know that. Or I didn't understand that my body worked like that or that the mind worked like that. She is so knowledgeable in her craft. She studies behavioral psychology, mixes it with her nutrition background, and she combines the two so that you're using behavior analysis and actual psychology layered with nutrition. So she really focuses on a holistic approach of making sure that when you work with her, you're not being restricted. You're not going back to diets and things that are really extreme that never work out. Her protocol with me is so simple. It's almost like I remember getting the sheet from her of what I was supposed to do. And I was like, wait, this is it? I thought we were going to be doing like a pantry clean out. You're going to give me like meal plans that we're going to be, you know, eat a handful of walnuts and you know, lemon water in the morning and all these crazy things that I always have seen when people work with nutritionists or do detoxes or anything like that. And it was basically just like, take these supplements and try to eat before 8 p.m. And I was like, what? And then she's like, yeah, we're going to focus more on like letting go of all the things you think you know about nutrition, resetting and listening to your body and its hunger cues. And that was something that honestly, I'm 30 years old and like I haven't really done. I've done a lot of extreme things. I've done not so extreme things. I've tried all the like weight loss programs and diets and apps. And it really wasn't until Jordana started pointing out to me that a lot of my mindset around nutrition was really, really not only limited, but 
like old school. <laughs> you know what I mean? Of just like calories in, calories out and don't eat certain fattening foods and fruit is bad for you and all these different things that are just so outdated, which is interesting because I do surround myself with so many intelligent people when it comes to nutrition and wellness and mindset that I just realized this is a byproduct of how I grew up and where I grew up. I just grew up eating fast food and quick food and, you know, easy, cheap things. And then when you get into college, God knows what I ate, Taco Bell and like Jimmy John's every day. And then when I got into corporate America, it was like Chipotle, Starbucks, and then a few nice dinners here and there. So yeah, my personal journey with nutrition and health has been a roller coaster. And you will hear about it on this episode hear about that on this episode with Jordana and she goes into her background as well because I always assume nutritionists like were born with that body or that mindset or that lifestyle and so to hear someone that came out on the other side of a really really rough not only childhood but then getting into her more formative years what she went through oh my gosh it's so incredible her story so you definitely want to get a notebook and pen because like I said, she dropped some major knowledge bombs and even I have to re-listen to it and be like, okay, let me write this down and apply it to my life because she's so, so, so knowledgeable at what she does. Now, if you're a first time listener, I have been doing giveaways every month for leaving a podcast review and this month is no different. So if you leave a review, you can send it to info at chelsearife.com or just DM me at Chelsea Rife. And for the month of August, anybody who leaves a review is getting entered into a giveaway to win access to the Summer Reboot audio course. This is one of my favorite courses I've ever made because it's short, quick, practical, and actually transformative. It's an audio lesson every day with a transcription as well. And then there's prompts at the end of each one for you to actually reflect and reboot. So this is not just a course of like write down affirmations and write down your best life or anything like that. This is actually asking you to go back to the last six months of the year and celebrate and give yourself credit and start to focus on how you want to really form the rest of your year with practical steps. So the Summer Reboot is a three-day audio course. And like I said, anybody who leaves a review during the month of August is getting entered into a giveaway. And at the end of August, I will pull that winner and you'll win free access. And if you want to go ahead and buy it, it's just $55. It's up on my website. You can go just head to the link in my bio and you'll find it there. Three days, three short lessons, prompts at the end. And I promise you, if you even do one of the days, you will probably feel a shift in your energy. And that's the whole point. Just a bit different every day a bit more progress a bit more joy a bit more happiness a bit more contentment a bit more peace that's the whole goal with any of my work is like i just want you to start feeling a bit better and these are really practical steps to do that also just a quick business update you all have probably seen on instagram that mic drop is officially open for early bird enrollment so fucking excited I actually originally launched this back in March and I had so much personal stuff going on and adjusting to Germany and figuring stuff out that I just felt really weird about launching it then. So I pushed it back and I'm so happy I did because now I truly feel like this is the perfect time to launch a podcast. I feel like the timing of everything always works out. And if you guys have been just following podcast news in general, you've probably seen that not only does the space keep growing, but podcasters keep signing incredible deals. I don't know if you're a fan of Call Her Daddy or not, but whether you are, 
or not, you may have seen that Alexandra just got a $60 million deal with Spotify for her podcast. $60 million. And remember what that podcast started out about. That was just two best friends living in New York talking about their weekend rendezvous and sex tips and hooking up and breaking up. Okay, so when you feel like you have nothing to talk about, I want you to go back to what that podcast's original content was about and what it turned into and the mega impact it's had. And now Alex just signed a $60 million deal with Spotify. Woo, I can't believe it's still. I'm like reeling from the news. But outside of that, if you just want to start it as a hobby or you want it to be an extension of your business or you want to share your voice to make an impact, there's so many different ways that podcasting can do that for you. I am such a fan of it because I get to actually talk about what I want to talk about. There's no character limit. There's no video limit. I don't have to worry about being reported or taken down or anything because I have this space to talk about what I want. You know how people always say you own your email list audience? That's how I feel about podcasting. And I don't mean own the audience. I just mean I have more control over what I can say versus the social algorithms. It's like, I don't really know what people are seeing. I'm praying that the right people are seeing my content. Then there's an update and now I have to do reels and now there's another update and I need to use this feature and it's just exhausting where podcasting, I've been doing it for four years and it's stayed the same pretty much for the last four years. Of course, analytics develop and things get updated, but at the very basis of what it does, it's just you pressing record, saying your message and then uploading it and publishing it. There's no like gimmicks and tricks and hacks and all these things that come with the social platforms. Of course, again, there's strategy, but those are things that you can figure out along the way. And that's what I'm teaching you inside Mic Drop. So if you want to enroll, not only will you get an early bird discount until August 15th, which is $100 off, the first five people that enroll are getting a one-on-one 90-minute consult with me. And as of today, when I'm recording, there's just three spots left for that. But you're also going to learn everything about launching a podcast, including recording, editing, storytelling, interviewing. This isn't just about the tech. So, you know, some people are like, oh, well, couldn't I just go on YouTube and figure that out? Of course, you can spend all day on YouTube and figure anything out. This is about not only launching a podcast, but sustaining it, growing it making sure that your content ideas are something that you want to be talking about, that you're sharing your message with the right people, that you're using a strategy that will help your podcast grow with its impact. That's all going down inside Mic Drop. So it starts in mid-September and it's going to be four weeks long. And like I said, early bird enrollment is now open until August 15th. So if you want to take advantage of that, head to the link in the show notes or the link in my bio on Instagram and you can go ahead and enroll. So excited for the women already inside. I'm just like, It really is my greatest pleasure and like my biggest life purpose to help people unleash their voice. And when anyone signs up, my heart skips a beat because I'm like, holy shit, this person's podcast could seriously change the world. And like, that's what I want everybody to feel like. I want them to know their voice matters. Like we need your story. The world wants to hear your story. So Mic Drop, again, is open for enrollment, and I do have a few spots open for one-on-one podcast coaching, and you get automatic access to Mic Drop if you are a one-on-one client. So again, one-on-one coaching is open as well as Mic Drop. Both are around podcasting. One is just working on a deeper level with me, which is one-on-one, and one is a four-week course to make sure you can launch and grow and sustain your podcast. All right, without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode with Jordana. 
Okay, everybody, I am joined today by Jordana Sade of the Mindful Clinic. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much, Chelsea, for having me. It's an honor to be here. I'm so excited because health and nutrition and wellness has been a big like up and down in my life. It's always been in waves. Like I go through stages where I'm very healthy, so committed on track, and then I fall off. And then I get really into it and then I fall off. And I actually just thought that's how the rest of my life would be. Like, okay, I'll just go through phases where I'm healthy and really unhealthy. And it wasn't until this year when my friend Marley, who you work with, Mm -hmm. uh, really recommended you and was like, Jordana changed my life. I think you should look into her. And ever since we started working together, I've noticed some massive changes and I can't wait to dive into them today. So why don't we start with your own health and wellness journey? Let's go back to like baby Jordana through, (laughs) let's say, high school, because I know you have quite the story. So let's try to break it up from like childhood to high school, if that works. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So, I mean, I guess I grew up as basically an only child, right? So I have, I have lots of siblings, but they're a lot older than me and they're all moved out. So there was just like a lot of attention on me. Um, and my mom is an Italian chef. And so she grew up where there was like food scarcity. Um, she grew up in Italy and and immigrated here. Um, so her answer to everything is just basically to eat. And I remember constantly eating Chelsea. Like There was never a time in the day when I was not being served food, like all the time. I would just finish a meal and she would be like, oh, have some pears, have some of this. It was just constant in my house. Uh, And so obviously I was much larger than any of my peers. And I was really one of the only overweight kids in my elementary school class because obesity rates were significantly lower then. And I really just stood out like a sore thumb. So with all of the, there was bullied and rejection um, throughout my whole childhood, honestly. And with all the rejection and bullying, I really learned from a young age that I just like wasn't good enough the way that I was. And so I began to develop a pretty self self loathing complex. Like I just, I really just hated myself at my core. And I always felt like I needed to fix something. So in my household, there was a lot of attention on food, of course, and how much I was eating or how little I was eating. And I remember my friends coming over and my mom was like, you can have seconds or are you still hungry? And then she'd be like, Jordana, please stop eating. <laughs> You've had enough. Um, and in my family, we're very fixated on appearances, unfortunately. So I always had to be done up in this like very extraordinary way. And I remember hearing a lot that, you know, you're so pretty if you just lost a little bit of weight. And it was very confusing because there was always this, there was this like, double standard here. There was always this delicious food, but then it was kind of off limits, but then also forced, like pushed on me. So it was was very confusing as a child. Um, And food really became a means of self-soothing, not just for me, but I I see this also in my siblings and with my parents or with my mother specifically. So food at that point was really my only source of happiness because I just, I really just hated myself so much. And school was really hard, not having a lot of friends and being bullied. So I began to really self-medicate with like sugary treats and multiple courses of pasta. And when I was in grade four, I had a crush on this boy in my class and in a game of tag, we were playing tag in the gym and I was it and I caught him. And I remember he was like, fatty caught me. And I just remembered everything about this moment as if it happened like it was yesterday. I remember that orange penny that he was wearing and the smell of the musty gym. And this is the crazy thing about trauma and the way it encodes in the nervous system. It just encodes so deeply. You remember it as if it's like a picture playing. This experience was honestly the motivating factor for me to go on a diet at eight years old. So I ended up I ended up actually switching schools, but the bullying really didn't didn't stop. It just kind of relocated. But that was the first time I really began to restrict my food. And I made the connection between the amount of food that I was eating and the weight that I was. So 
kind of on a different topic, but also, I guess, relevant. I was also a really smart kid. So my mom was a lot older when she had me. Um, Like I said, I have a lot of older sisters, right? So when she had me, it was kind of uncommon for a woman of that age to have a child that was born without any defects. And so I was trained and tested at, at U of T in a research study from birth to age 13. So I would go there every week and play these like intellectual games. And they taught me to expand my memory and to think in this like very unique way. And I was really attached to my father as a kid, and he was really into grades. So he had extremely high expectations of me. And so in the same way, I was kind of bred into perfectionism with my with the way that I would perform in school, but then also my appearance. So bringing home a grade of like 98% was never good enough. And like to this day, I honestly still struggle with being an overachiever. And this really brings me up until high school. So until I went to, an, I went to an arts high school, right? Um, and for music theater. So again, this is like, there's a performance thing here. Um, And when I was in grade 10, I was dating this guy and he broke up with me and like totally broke my heart. And in the same week, my dad was diagnosed with cancer and it just was, this really just fucked me up. Like I was in, I had no idea how to handle this. And so I think in an attempt to rebel, my dad was a smoker. So I began to steal his cigarettes and I hung out with a totally different crowd and I just started using drugs. And with my first use, I was totally hooked. Like I had finally found something that I liked more than food. It was just this amazing experience. And so I began to use drugs and throughout using these substances, I lost a lot of weight because I was no longer using food to self-soothe. I was using substances. And I was honestly reinforced by the praise that I received from everyone around me, like guys that I liked, the coolest guy in school had a crush on me. And it was just like this awesome experience. I was like, I'd finally done it. Um, and instead of eating, I would just like take ecstasy and then go to high school first thing in the morning. It was, it was just a crazy time. And now that I have a son, I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe that. Um, but I stopped performing in school and my art altogether. It's honestly a miracle I even got into university. So Upon graduation, I went to Concordia in Montreal. And if you've ever been to Montreal, you know, it's a big party city. So it was there that my addiction really started to get bad. Um, I started using cocaine and I was a daily user. It was more than just a party drug for me. It was a real addiction and a lifestyle. It was really bad for my health. It was so bad that I actually have a bone sticking out from inside of my nose to this day. I mean, it's healed a lot, but it's, yeah, it was really, really bad. And I was actually eventually asked not to return to Concordia, obviously, because I didn't really go to school. I flunked out of my two first years. And at that point, my parents were like, we're not going to pay for you to party anymore. So it's time for you to come home. So I moved back to Toronto and in an attempt to save myself and like my nose, I pulled back from the chemical drugs, but the addiction really didn't stop. It just moved from one thing to the next. So I just picked up drinking and eating again because I was back at home where the food lives, right? And um, I made multiple attempts to go back to school at this point, but nothing really stuck. So I tried with Humber and Ryerson, but I just, I really couldn't finish either degree because I was just so wrapped up in my lifestyle of drug addiction. So I'm about 22 at this point, and I ended up getting pregnant with my boyfriend at the time. And honestly, I mean, this was the best thing that's ever happened to me. Like my son saved my life. So I was forced to stop, stop drinking and stop smoking and using any of the drugs. And in the moment of sobriety, I really kind of had a moment to look back at my life. And I was like, what the fuck? What the fuck happened here? I had so much promise as a child, Chels, and I just didn't understand where things had gone wrong. And so I decided to become a nutritionist. And when my son was nine months old, I went back to school because I wanted to become a nutritionist so I could heal my disordered eating. 
And I graduated from the Institute of Holistic Nutrition with first class honors, and I was chosen to be valedictorian. And I felt like for the first time in years, I had like finally found myself again. Like I was like baby Jordana again. Um, and originally I wanted to learn how to fix my eating habits, but as I began to change my diet, I recognized that like most of my mental, mental health issues had completely gone away as well. So I kind of fell in love with the connection between nutrition and mental health. And I was hired right out of school to work with a medical doctor, Dr. Muhammad Abraham in his obesity clinic. And we saw over 400 patients and I ended, we actually ended up writing a book together on overcoming obesity and its related disorders. It's available on Amazon if you'd like to see it, (laughs) but yeah, it's really, it's really, it's really um, user-friendly. So, but in the clinic, I saw just so many people suffering just as I did. Like we all know what's healthy. We all know that an apple is healthier than a chocolate bar, but we still choose a chocolate bar anyways. So I became obsessed with this concept of like what motivates people to self-sabotage and I really wanted to understand the motivating factor behind people's behavior towards food and brain behavior activity. So I was like, I need to go back to school. So I went back to school and I pursued a master's and PhD in neuroscience and behavioral neuropsychology. And originally this was to learn how to facilitate behavioral changes around food, but it's helped me uncover the motivation behind most human behavior in general. Like it's not just around food disorders, it's around substance disorders or self-sabotage or any type of compulsive behaviors. And it helped me understand the human body on this completely different level. So I was always terrified of being an entrepreneur. Um, But last year, I really took the leap and branched out on my own. And I launched the Mindful Clinic, where I help clients recover from their disorder behaviors using my program, which really incorporates neuroscience, nutrition, behavioral psychology, functional medicine. And it helps people heal so that they can actually truly thrive. I can say, honestly, I'm no longer addicted to anything, like not substances or over-exercising, which was also a problem, or and definitely not food. And once I figured out how to completely change my life, I knew I needed to share this with people. So at this point, like my work is honestly my mission. I work with so many people with similar stories to me and people who felt like food controls their life and people who continue to self-sabotage. And I also just feel like there's a lot of misinformation out there about nutrition, and it's very confusing for people to know how to eat properly. So it's really just my mission to clarify that and help people get on the right track. Yeah, Yeah. that's me. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to unpack here, and I absolutely want to get into the self-sabotage and addiction with food. That's a huge thing that so many of us struggle with. But something that really stood out to me was two major things that you just said. At eight years old, you said you were going to go on a diet or that was like your first concept of a diet. Walk us through what you mean. Like, did you go talk to your parents and say like, we need to buy healthier food. I'm going on a diet. Or how did this work? Because I also know cafeteria food is not good. So how did you even manage this? Were you preparing lunches? Like, were, was your mom like, what are you talking about? Like, I need to hear what happened in that moment that you're like, I'm going on a diet at eight years old. Yeah. So I actually didn't have a cafeteria in my elementary school and my mom always packed my lunch. And the interesting thing is junk food really wasn't a thing in my family, yet most of the people in my family are or have been at one point obese. It's just that my mom cooks like such festive, rich meals and there's just food access to food 24-7. So at that point, I didn't announce it to anybody. I didn't tell my parents. I just knew because my mom would basically tell my friends that they could eat more, but not me. So there was, I made the connection and children are like this children, the child, the brains, the brain in children is so adaptive. It's always trying to make connections between things. So when someone tells you like, Hey, Jordana, 
you're a little chubby, don't have second helpings, I make the connection of, okay, if I eat more, it's related to my weight. So what I would do is my mom would just pack my lunches and I just wouldn't eat them. I would just Mm. like starve myself. Wow. And then the bullying and rejection that was happening as well. I'm curious, like, did you ever report this to anybody? Were you just like eating your feelings? You know, I'm putting that in air quotes. Like, how did you deal with that outside of the maybe just food addiction like that happened later? Yeah. So I definitely ate my feelings because I think that when somebody, not I think, I know that when somebody tells you that there's something wrong with you, you're going to look for a way to self-soothe. You're going to look for a way to make, find relief from the inner pain because it's painful to hear stuff like that. So I was taught at a very young age to self-soothe with food. And so I, I ate my feelings for a long time. And it wasn't until I went on a diet that I found comfort in starving myself, right? So there's there's this double-edged sword here, right? And then also doing ecstasy and going to high school. I mean, this is crazy. <laughs> like, first of all, how are you even in class? Like, aren't, aren't you like sitting in your desk like, woo, got to like dance a little bit? Like- I've taken ecstasy, y'all. I'm being transparent here. And I don't know how you're just sitting in class every day focusing, writing a paper. Like, I need to hear that ex- that whole experience. Yeah. So I went to an art school and things are very different in art schools. Like, it was a big, there was a big party scene there. And a lot of the time I wouldn't go to class. So we would drop MDMA or ecstasy and sometimes one or two pills. And then we would hang in class for a little bit and then we just leave and go to the park. Um, there was a lot of drinking. We've done LSD in class before and then left. Um, yeah, so it wasn't, I wasn't the only one. So it's not like I was sitting there by myself. My friends also too had the same type of habit. So it was more like all of high school was just kind of a party for me. And the only reason why I graduated was because I had one really good friend at the time and she was so responsible yet such a party girl at the same time. So she just really helped me get my shit together with my homework. And like I said, and why I thought it was important to mention, but I have a really good memory. I've always, I've, I've been trained to have a memory like this. So I could hear something once and then just regurgitate it on a test. So I didn't have the best marks because I wasn't really going to school, but I had, I was able to pass and get into university. Right. But weren't your teachers like, Hey, why are you guys all fucked up? Like, why are your eyes red? Why are you (laughs) skipping class? Like, I I truly can't fathom that many kids on drugs in my class and not like understanding what's happening. Yeah, I think they knew. I remember coming back one day from lunch. So everybody would go to the park at lunch and smoke weed. And I remember coming back from the day at lunch and my homeroom teacher, because I was in music theater. So this was my singing class. And my homeroom teacher was like, hey, Jordan, are you hungry? And I'm like, no, it was just lunchtime. She's like, are you sure you're not hungry? You want to munch on something? And I was like, oh my God, she fucking knows. Like she definitely knows. So I think that they knew they just really didn't care. Like not that they didn't care. They would just give us good marks, but they didn't really care about our success because they knew that we didn't care either. So they're like, Mm. whatever, we're just going to mark this person absent and call it a day. Wow. And what about legal trouble? Like, did that ever pop up in your life with, with getting into so many different situations? Yeah, actually, I got arrested in Hilton Head in the States and I was put in jail at 17 years old and I was there for three days and two nights. I was on vacation with my best, my friend that I was talking about that helped me through school. So her parents are super British and we went on vacation to Hilton Head and it was St. Patrick's Day. And obviously in the States, like in Canada, you have to be 19 years old, but in the States, you have to be 21 years old to drink. You know, you're from the States. So 
we were at St. Patrick's Day and I had a fake ID, which was a real Canadian ID. It just wasn't me, but it looked like me. And I, uh, I went to get a glass of beer, one for me and one for my friend. And I looked old enough, but my friend really did not. She looked like a 12 year old girl. And a cop came up to me and he was like, I'm going to need to see some ID. And I was like, I have a wristband. <laughs> and he was like, um, I'm going to need to see a real piece of ID here. And I was like, okay. And the problem was we had an entire ounce of weed in my bag. So I like pull out my wallet and I handed the fake ID and he's like, oh, you're from Canada, eh? I'm going to see a second piece of ID. And I was like, oh, fuck, like I didn't know what to do. And then he was like, what's that in your bag? And I had no, I didn't know what my rights were. I'm 17 years old. I had no idea. And so then I like pull out the bag of weed and literally next thing I know, I'm like nailed to the ground, hands behind my head. Cops like, you just made my day. Didn't even read me my rights. And the fucked up thing is I had so many other things in that bag, like I had a pill of MDMA and at that point there was like a big debate about drugs. So if they had taken that, it would have been 25 years to life for me. I had so much weed that it was considered trafficking. It was, it was Chelsea. It was the most terrifying situation ever. My poor friend's parents had to bail me out three days later. Yeah. Um, it was awful. And the only reason why I don't have that on my record is because my sister works for the government here in Canada and she hired me a kick-ass lawyer. Um, and also they didn't read me my rights. So yeah, wow. I got off lucky. <laughs> oh my God. And the reason I ask for so much context in your story and like getting into these nitty gritty details is because if you looked at your page now, you would never know this. Like I remember following you and I'm like, oh, this girl's probably been healthy her whole life. Probably one of those people <laughs> that's just like genetically healthy, which I need to ask you about that in a second. You know, her yeah. family probably always like knew about nutrition. She must have just had this background forever. So to hear all these very specific instances where that's not the case shows you that like you don't have to stay attached to your past identity, which it doesn't seem like you're attached to that past party girl persona that I like have to like, you know, fuck things up for attention and do all these crazy things to like be accepted. And, and I definitely want to talk through this of like, you, you went to the nutrition school, you saw all these patients, you saw the transformations, but how did you in your own life start to progress? Well, I, like I said, I think it really had to do with me getting pregnant. I think that once, Mm. because I know that I've given a bad rep to my family thus far, but I will say that I do come from quite a good family. Everybody is very loving. They do the best with what they know. Right. And most of the time, my mother especially thought that she was protecting me. Like she didn't want me to be bullied or made fun of. She saw how unhappy I was. So she, when she would say things like put makeup on or stop eating that it was with I'm doing this in quote, my best interest at heart, right? So I come from a fairly good family. I live in Oakville. I mean, I'm we're very privileged. So I think that I've always had good role models in a sense. And when I became pregnant, I looked back at my life and I was like, what the fuck have I been doing here? Like I have everything. And so I knew that the life that I wanted to give my son was not anywhere near what I had experienced. And if I was going to do that, I really had to get my shit together. So for me, the biggest thing that's held me, like my prison has always been food. And so I was like, he's nine months old. I want to go back to school. I, I couldn't have had a baby and be a, a high school, not a high school, like a university dropout. I needed to give him a good life. So I went back to school to study nutrition. And simultaneously, I thought I'm going to fix all of my problems regarding food. And then from there, because I really do love to learn, like I love research and 
from there, I just learned so much about the human body and I made so many connections about things that had happened to me. And so I really excelled and I was able to help so many people heal. And when I was hired in the clinic, I had a very different perspective and could relate to a lot of the obese patients in a very different way because it was something that I had personally gone through. And I really understood, you know, the battle that you have with yourself when you're trying to make healthy choices, but the body's just on a completely different program. The body's like, I just want to eat chips and chocolate all day long and hate myself, even though I know if I go out for a walk, I'm going to feel much better. So I've always been very interested in addiction as well, of course, because I have that huge history with addiction. So when the doctor closed the clinic, I thought it was a very opportune moment for me to go back to school and learn more about neuroscience and neuropsychology and make these brain behavior connections with the hope in mind that I would be able to work with people with food disorders and addictions. Wow. Yeah. And and something that I'm curious about is a lot of us from our past bad decisions are still paying for it today. So I'm curious... Is there anything from your past that either affected your pregnancy or now? Like, are you still dealing with it? I know you said a bone sticking out in your nose. Like, (laughs) is there anything else that you're like, yeah, I'm still paying for it? Oh, gosh, yeah. I mean, so many things. If I had just done high school right and university right, I wouldn't be – I wouldn't have have had such a hard time going back to school, getting my master's and PhD. I would have already been at the level right now where I would be finished everything and already be – able to have the impact that I, that I plan on having. Like right now I'm still doing my master's and PhD. So I'm having to navigate running a full practice that there's a wait list. I'm, I'm a mother and I have school. So it's, it's very busy. And I feel that I feel it in that way where, you know, I would have so much more time and freedom if I had just done things the right way. But I also know that if all of that didn't happen to me, I wouldn't be at the point where I'm at now. So it's hard with that. But as far as my health, I've been working on my health for a very long time and my liver is still a disaster from the things that I put myself through. So I work actually personally, I have my own practitioner, of course, and my practitioner is a Chinese medicine doctor. And she's been working with me for honestly over a year just on my liver alone. And we are still unpacking shit. Like it is a disaster and I still deal with a lot of negative symptoms. So yeah, I mean, I think it's a process and I think that the more stuff you keep inside of you emotionally or physically, the further down it buries themselves into the organs. And then when you're peeling back those layers, it can be kind of a painful process. So yeah, I am still dealing with stuff. Yeah. I mean, I I can't imagine, but it's so interesting to hear again, how you did turn it around. You didn't let that define you and be like, well, I guess I'm just going to have to deal with this liver for the rest of my life and like see what happens. You are taking those matters into your hands and that's something I want to talk about, these these concepts that sometimes it just feels like it's so far away. Like, for example, obesity or gaining weight. It just feels sometimes like when you gain weight, you're like, well, why would I start now? Like, it's going to take so long to lose this weight. It's going to take forever to change a habit. And you've been talking a lot about that brain and a behavior connection. So can you talk about why some people, we know the chocolate bar is better. I mean, excuse me, worse for us, but we continue to grab for it. Let's walk through like, why does that happen? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, there's, there's so many different factors to think about here, Chelsea. I think that honestly, trauma and being disconnected from your intuition and disconnected from yourself is probably at the root of it. So I'll get into that. Yeah. I mean, I may as well just get into that now. So basically we are born as really intuitive beings. Like a baby is never going to cry for food if it's not hungry ever. So, so many people I work with 
downplay their traumatic experiences, but the nervous system encodes them so deeply. And there's a big misconception here about trauma. Like it doesn't have to be this huge event, like a car crash or sexual assault or a parent dying. So that's like big T trauma. There can also be small T trauma, like bullying, rejection. If you even see somebody else being bullied, there's that's a traumatic experience because you can think like, oh God, I don't want that to happen to me. So you'll start to behave in ways that are not in tune with your actual intuition to prevent that from happening. So for me as a kid, it was that kid in my class calling me fat. Like that was trauma for me. And, and the way that I remember it tells me that is trauma. So trauma lives in the subconscious. Like we spend 98% of our day in the subconscious mind. So you, if you want to consciously make changes to your life, you can say all you want. Like I want to lose weight. I want to get fit. I want to be rich. But the body's on a completely different program. Like the conscious part is only 2%. You're living 98% of the subconscious. So when we go through these experiences, these traumatic experiences, they live in the subconscious and they encode very deeply. And this all relates to the attachment theory. So the role of attachment is a basic need for children. Human beings have the longest attachment period of any other species. Like a horse can get up and run the day it's born and never see its parents again. But human beings literally rely on the care and the love from the people around them to survive. Like we talk about basic needs, there's like food, shelter, water. The role of attachment is more important to the to human babies than all of those things because we require the love and care from the people around us to obtain things like that, right? So when you're a child and somebody tells you that something about you is not good enough, whether it's your parent or somebody else, the child doesn't have the emotional capacity to understand that this is not personal. The child hears, I'm not lovable, therefore I'm going to lose my attachment and the brain sees that loss of attachment as a threat to its survival. It literally thinks in the subconscious mind, I'm going to die. So this experience lives in the subconscious and replays even years and years later. And you develop, this is how you develop these self-limiting beliefs. So in my practice and with myself, if somebody was bullied or overweight, no matter how much weight they lose, they always still kind of feel like that fat kid. So they have that limiting belief. And this is because the subconscious sends you cues on a daily basis to remind you, hey, don't eat this, don't eat that. Remember that time <laughs> that time that kid called you fat? It's an attempt to save you. So the subconscious mind is all about survival. And sometimes that survival is not helpful for our goals. So the brain is literally not wired for success. It's wired for safety. And sometimes the habits that we have, whether it be like through overeating or drug abuse or self-sabotaging behaviors, is not adaptive for our success, but it's adaptive for our safety. There's comfort in that. So the brain will naturally gravitate towards comfort because it's safe there, even though those disorders or the behaviors are not helpful for your success. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I talk about this a lot with my clients is like the brain always wants safety. It doesn't matter yeah. like what you're doing. It always craves safety. That's why we hate uncertainty. That's why we hate job changes or leaving a relationship or all these things, even if they're bad for us, because it's like, well, I'd rather stick with what I know than what I don't know, because at least it's certain and it's safe. And it brings yeah. the question up of, for example, this this actually happens with me. It'd be like fully transparent is sometimes I lose weight and I can tell my body is changing and then I, like you said, self-sabotage, like, okay, well, now I'm going to go binge or eat something crazy. And it's like, I almost feel like my current body is like my security blanket. And I'm curious, like, is that an attachment? Why do people feel like they need to hold on to this weight as a safety measure? Yeah. So if we think about the physical holding on to weight, like that is protection, right? The body will do that when we don't deal with our emotions. Like emotions should be felt, not fixed, right? So I think we need to, this kind of brings up the same concept of 
understanding why we want to engage in behaviors to make us healthy. So if we're coming from a place of, I need to fix something, you are telling yourself that whatever you have going on is not good enough. And so changing from a place of trying to fix something is never going to bring you to where you want to go because you're again, feeding into this identity of like, I'm not good enough. Right. So even if you start losing weight, you still feel like I'm not good enough because I I did this from trying to fix something. So it's always going to make you want to pack on the weight again. But also if that happens, if you're finding that you're losing weight and then you just naturally self-sabotage, a lot of the time is to do with these emotional things that are kind of these emotional traumas or these, these emotions that are buried and not felt. And so the brain and the body will create this physical barrier and hold on to more weight to literally protect you. Mm-hmm. I also see this from the perspective of like people who are serial dyers and also people who have gone through like really serious um, trauma. So I have a lot, I work with some people who have been sexually abused and with them, it's very obvious, like their body's holding on to a lot of weight because, you know, some of it, part of it is maybe they don't want to look attractive. They don't want to, they're, they're not happy with who they are. They feel uncomfortable. They feel like there's a threat to their survival. So whenever there's a threat to any survival, the brain naturally is going to want to hold on to weight because that is not only just comfort, that is also a storage of cells and a storage of nutrients in case the species dies, if that makes sense. So if we break it down from like cereal diets, often people who go on diets, it's because they felt that they need to fix something within them, right? But as long as you're telling yourself that something needs to be fixed, you're telling yourself you're not good enough. And the problem with cereal dieting or dieting in general is that food is a basic need, right? So this lives in the primitive brain. The primitive brain is like 300 million years old. It's the same brain that's in all of the species in the world. Only human beings have the conscious brain. Animals don't have that, right? So food actually sits in the primitive brain. So when we tell our brain, oh, can't have this. Oh no, only 800 calories. Donuts off limits. The brain doesn't really understand the difference between protein, carbohydrates, and donuts. It literally just hears this person is going to restrict something that's a basic need. So it starts to act in a primitive way. This is a threat to my survival. I'm not going to eat. So the body's like, let's pack on weight. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it also brings up another question then about, I know this is a question that probably listeners have too, is like, why does it take, why does it feel like it takes so long to lose weight and see a change versus gaining weight? Like it sometimes feels like I eat a pizza and I feel just bigger and bloated and like I've gained weight from one pizza. And then it feels like it takes months to lose weight. And I'm curious, like when you deal with people in your own practice too, is that, is that a myth or is that a real thing? Yeah, this is this is a really interesting topic. I've been doing a lot of research on this topic actually because I believe the reason why this the reason why this happens is because it comes down to our thought process around food. So, there's a lot of recent research about how the nervous system is wired for weight loss and gain and it really comes down to your thoughts. So, your thoughts can manipulate and change the way that your body behaves on a chemical, molecular and biological manner. The thoughts that you have, you have a thought It literally dumps neurotransmitters and hormones into the bloodstream, binds to your cells, and tells them how to behave. So if you have the thought of, holy shit, I'm eating this pizza, it's going to make me gain weight, like, yes, it is, because you're literally thinking about that. So I'm going to give you an example of a study. There's an amazing study by Aaliyah Crum. Um, She's from Stanford. She's an amazing doctor, uh, where she basically took two milkshakes. Both milkshakes were identical, right? 
both milkshakes were completely identical. She had two different groups. With one group, she told them this milkshake is highly caloric. With the other group, she told them this milkshake is low caloric. And then they measured biometrics. So with the group that she told them this milkshake is high caloric, blood glucose spiked at this like crazy rate versus the group she told them what was low caloric, blood glucose rose at a very like gradual rate, like a normal rate. Then she switched them. So with the person she told it was high caloric, she gave them the low caloric drink. And they had a very different response to the exact same milkshake. Like, this is fucking crazy, right? Yes. This just tells you that your thoughts play such an important role that it can actually manipulate the way that your body responds to what you're eating. So if you're eating healthy and you're like, okay, I'm just salads all day. I'm just trudging through. Like, I just got to make my pan. Like, it's going to take as long as it's going to take for your body to get rid of what it has. But if you have a piece of pizza and the minute you have it, you're like, fuck, this is going straight to my thighs. Yeah, sure shit it is. Like, because you literally just told your cells how to behave in your thighs. Like, you literally just told your adipose tissue, gain weight. So a lot of it comes down to your thought patterns. So then if someone, let's say, is having a pizza and ice cream this weekend, what is a more helpful thought that they could replace the negative thought with? So I think that first and foremost, we need to get over the like good food, bad food. There are foods that are healthier for you for sure. And then there are foods that are treats that are, and I hate, I don't really even like to use the word treat because we shouldn't really be like rewarding ourselves with food, like junk food. But I think that if we're going to develop a healthy relationship with food, we need to understand that no foods are off limits. We have the, we have the choice, right? We can choose to eat. And when we realize when we regain that control, oftentimes people will choose the healthy thing most of the time. So if you're going to engage in, you know, having pizza, it's it's a, you're out with your friends, you're having pizza and wings. You really need to be thinking like, Hey, this is an awesome experience. I'm so lucky that I get to enjoy this delicious meal with my friends. And I'm so lucky that my body is designed to digest this food because your bodies are designed to digest that food. It's, it's the problem is when we eat that food and we're like, fuck, what did I do? Now you've created a negative self-identity because you feel guilt and shame. And so you're going to continue to engage in behaviors that are consistent with that identity of guilt and shame. So it's just going to perpetuate the bad eating cycle. But if you look at the food you're eating, whether it's healthy or not, and you're like, this was an awesome experience. I'm so lucky I had this experience. Thank God I have a body that can digest food properly and you just move the fuck on. You're fine. This reminds me a lot of when I moved to Australia and a few months in, I noticed my body really changing, even though I was working out less, I was eating differently. I wasn't eating better. I was just eating differently. And I was like, what could possibly be the change? Because to give context, before I moved to Australia, I was working out 14 times a week. I was doing two workout classes a day, cycling, personal training, Pilates, yoga. I was eating like salads. I was really, you know, watching every calorie. I had my Apple watch, tracking everything. At one point I was on Weight Watchers, tracking every single piece of food. And then when I moved to Australia, I, we've talked about this actually, I want to bring this up. I sold my Apple watch during my yoga training because not during, but right after, because I was like, this feels weird to have my Apple watch in this like very holy Shala in Bali and like have the rings going off. It just felt weird. And right after that, I was like, I'm just going to enjoy my time off. Like I just quit my corporate job. I'm trying to find my footing here. So I would go on these daily beach walks, grab a cappuccino, just walk around, sometimes go to yoga, sometimes go to Pilates. And one day I just remember like getting ready and I was like, wait, whoa, am I like toned right now? Am I seeing abs? Am I seeing like arm muscles? And I couldn't, 
understand it because the way I had thought was like, you need to be putting in extra effort all the time with workouts, with everything. Like it's always that max out message. And so to all of a sudden not be maxing out, but all the, like my body is changing, I couldn't comprehend it. And now having this conversation, it's because my thoughts were different. I wasn't treating the, the cappuccino as like, oh my God, you should have gotten alternate milk in this cappuccino. Or if I had a ham and cheese croissant, it wasn't like the end of the world. It was like, who cares? Like enjoy this while you're eating with your friends. And then the slowing down and not being stressed out really helped. So I'm, I know you've had a similar experience. So can you share this? Yeah. So I think probably one of the biggest misconceptions about health in general is that you have to work your ass off to get to be fit and healthy. Here's the thing. Like the human body is never designed to hold on to weight. The human body is designed to heal itself and holding on to weight is not adaptive for the body at all. Holding on to weight is actually causes more energy draining for the body. So if the body's holding on to weight, it means that something's off balance. It could be emotional. It could be something physical, but you, you're like, obviously you'd have to work with somebody or you have to kind of get to the root of where that imbalance is. But if you always listen to what your body needs, then your body will always be happy and it will let go of what it doesn't need. The problem is, like I said, we are born into this world as intuitive beings. A baby's never going to cry for food if it's not hungry. The problem is we grow up our whole life and we, we, our brain thinks it's smarter than its stomach. It's like, no, don't eat this. Don't eat that. Only 800 calories, only 35 grams of protein. And so we start to lose that connection between what our body needs and what our brain thinks is trying to achieve. Right. Um, so I think that what happened to you and also what happened to me. So I was a serial I, compulsive behavior in every, every, every way, Chelsea, when I became healthy and I was in school studying nutrition, I was like, great, I'm going to become a runner. So I started running, running 5k in the morning, wasn't good enough. 10k every morning, wasn't good enough up to literally nothing under 15k every single morning was good enough. I, I, I ran until this, I did this for two years. I never took a break. I never took a day off. I ran until one day I fucking fainted in the middle of a gym and had to call an ambulance. And my body was just like, no, <laughs> like no more. And so I thought that I had to work that hard and eat as little as possible to be at the weight that I wanted. I've been all kinds of weights. I've been under hundred pounds. I've been almost 300 pounds. So I've literally seen both ends of the spectrum. And it wasn't until I started incorporating this whole mindset piece, this whole neuroscience and neuropsychology that I was like, holy shit, I really don't have to work that hard. I like, I exercise when I feel like it now. I walk a lot. I like, because I enjoy it. I eat whatever I want. I've never exercised less and ate more and been so fit. And it's crazy when you get to that point. And that's what I want to, that's what I want to share with everybody. I want everybody to feel this free. Yes. And that's something that I think it goes back to the, like you were talking about the whole mindset piece. When we started working together, we're working together now for four months. And I remember thinking, hopefully at the end of the four months, like one little thing has changed. And within like three weeks from following your protocols and truly like not even changing that many things, my skin was clearing up very visibly where people like even my boyfriend, and I feel like boys never know anything. <laughs> but my boyfriend was like, your skin's like glowing. And then I was on a zoom call and someone was like, your skin's glowing. And I started getting all these compliments and you were even like, that's a testament to like what's going on inside your body. It's literally glowing on the outside. And I remember thinking this must be a fluke. Like I thought this was going to take four months. I thought things were going to take a very long time, but it was the, the protocols you were giving me of like, you need to like stop 
categorizing things as good and bad and stop beating yourself up if you have the pizza one weekend and like it's okay look at the progress you've made and I think that's the biggest thing that this is probably a neuroscience thing you can walk us through is we can do so good but we we have like one I don't even like to call it bad meal but like that's even still you can see I'm still working through this like it happens to me all the time where I'll tell you I ate amazing all week but I had pizza and wine on the weekend and I only focus on that. So like, why do we not give ourselves the credit that we deserve when it comes to our health and wellness? Oh, this is a very simple question to answer. It's because human beings do not learn from positive feedback. We learn from negative feedback, mm. even if that negative feedback is coming from ourselves. So whenever we, and, and you'll think about it, the only reason why human beings change ever is because there's been a negative feedback concept. Positive feedback is like, have you ever had someone tell you a compliment and you're like, oh, thank you, but you don't like really feel it? Like, you don't like, really feel yeah. like, yeah, yeah, okay, like, great, yes, I hit my goals this month, great. But when someone says something negative about you, you fucking remember that. <laughs> like, that's not going anywhere, right? So, and it's the same thing for when we have our self-talk. So it's very easy for us to just completely dismiss all of the positive stuff and focus on the negative stuff because the brain attributes negative feedback to this is where I need to change. This is where I need to grow. And it kind of dismisses all. And again, it comes back down to adapt, like adaption or adapting. It's threat to the survival. It's like, how am I going to survive? Well, as long as I'm eating and doing positive things, none of that matters, but a negative thing is a threat to my survival. So I need to focus on it. So then with that being said, if we learn from negative feedback, but we're trying to talk to ourselves positively, it's then kind of confusing. It's like, well, wait, if I want to see change, do I need to like talk negatively to myself? You know what I mean? No. Does that make sense? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And so just because I said the brain is wired this way, it doesn't mean that like we can't change that. Right. It just means that it's going to take a lot of work because we have been brought up in a society where nothing is ever good enough here. And so, you know, it just means that we have to really change our narrative and understand that if we are going to focus on change, it's not change to fix ourselves; It's changing out of love. It's because we love ourselves, not to fix something. And I think once you can master that, there is no positive and negatives anymore. Like any negative thing that happens to me, I'm like, this was an awesome lesson. Even like, even if it's really shitty, like I've had some really fucking shitty shit happen to me. Um, and same with my clients, I see shit happen to them all the time. And I'm like, God damn it, that sucks. But when you develop this narrative of like, okay, everything is just a growing experience. As long as you're alive, then it doesn't matter. Nothing is positive or negative at all anymore. That pizza is a learning experience. Even if you had pizza three days in a row, I'm like, great. What's the lesson here? The lesson is here. Maybe we need to meal prep, you know? Yeah. And that's something I really appreciate about you is you, I, I don't even call it like tough love from you. I think you're just very like logical and reasonable and like you will nudge me the right way. Like my thing was I was eating way later than I needed to. And that's I had a time zone difference with my clients. And so I usually do calls later in the day. So I was eating at like nine, sometimes 10, sometimes even 11. And I was telling you, well, my day is just too busy. Like I can't eat any earlier. And we pulled up my calendar and you were like, well, there actually is a block between like six to seven and like six to seven thirty that maybe you could eat. And I was like, okay, I guess she's right. Like I made up this whole dramatic story. Like I have to eat late and I can't move things around and this isn't going to work for me. And this is the benefit of investing in someone who knows not only more than you, but that will hold you to a different standard. Like you were going to hold me to a different standard instead of being like, okay, yeah, then just eat at 11 and see what happens. It's like, no, like I want to actually see your progress. So I'm curious when you work with clients, I would love to talk about like Let's say the top three of the biggest issues that they come to you with. 
Well, okay. So the biggest issues that I see with my client's behavior or the biggest issues that they come to me with, because most people are coming to me with weight loss, obviously who doesn't want to lose weight? Everybody does. Like you can't, I mean, I have maybe one client who's like, I don't need to lose any more weight, but all of them, no matter who I talk to, weight loss is probably the top thing. People also come to me from, for a lot of like physical symptoms. So disorders. So i we can reverse a lot of chronic diseases like diabetes, high cholesterol, that kind of thing. I also deal with a lot of digestion stuff, parasites, candida. But if we're talking the three things that I see in my clients that are holding them back, the first one is late night eating. That'll really hold you back. That's probably the one that I see most frequently that I'm like, and I'm not a, a restrictive nutritionist because I, I see how restriction has bled into binge eating and a whole bunch of other stuff. Right. So, but the late night eating, you have to create a boundary around. And this is literally, it comes down to actual neuroscience and the way that hormones are produced. So if you eat before bed, you're not going to be producing growth hormone and growth hormone is the hormone that regulates your metabolism. So you could literally starve yourself all day long, but if you eat right before bed, you're not losing any weight. So, you know, that's the one where I'm like, okay, we got to create a boundary around this, but that would be one of them. The other is of course, negative relationship with food. So just negative self-talk and uh, not really feeling like having low self-esteem, like not understanding that the way that they think about food affects the way that it impacts their body. And then the third one would be just not getting enough movement, not exercise, but actual movement. And even like not drinking enough water. I see that a lot. And I'm just like, okay, this is a very simple fix. (laughs) But Yeah. When you said you're not restrictive, I can vouch for that. I remember one of our first conversations, my boundary with the eating late was what we were working on. And I was expecting you to be like, okay, in the morning, you're going to have like a handful of walnuts and eggs. Then you're going to have like celery and da da da. And you were like, no, just eat whatever you want before eight. And I was like, wait, what? And then I noticed when we had our call, you were like, yeah, because humans are naturally rebellious. Cause then I was like, well, I'm not going to eat whatever I want before eight. Like I want, I want to see progress. And it was, it seemed like a bit of reverse psychology. Was that what it was? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, that's, you bring up a good point. Humans are naturally rebellious. So as soon as we say to humans, like, no, think about Adam and even the apple, right? So if, if, as soon as we're like, no, this is off limits. If we have a moment of self-sabotage or a moment of tiredness or anger or whatever it is, the first thing we're going to do is one is self-sabotage and engage in the behavior that we know is not good for us. So um, I didn't mean it to be reverse psychology, but I do know that. And this is one of the things that I work on with my clients the most is this, the relationship with their mindset around food. If we can get to a place with my clients where they don't feel restriction around food, oftentimes the clients will make the right decision because, or will make the healthier decision because people love, like there, people want to survive. They want to thrive, right? If you're coming to me, you want to get better. So often if I can help you heal your relationship with food, your mindset around food, you're going to make the right choices anyways. Sometimes you're going to engage in behaviors that are unhealthy and that's totally okay. Because once you have the option to engage in both behaviors, most of the time people choose the healthier thing anyways. Yeah. And I think, again, it goes back to hiring a mentor. It's there is this kind of dynamic where I'm like, well, I don't also want to like disappoint you. You know, it's like, I don't want to come to our next call and be like, yeah, I truly ate whatever I wanted. And now I feel ill. And now I have more symptoms. And it's like, no, I want to like show you that I am working on my health and nutrition. So I love that you're not restrictive and you really leave it open ended to put that power back in the client's hands. Well, yeah, like I believe that 
and this kind of goes back to intuition, right? So if we, we we get farther and farther away from our intuition, because I know some of your listeners are listening right now and they're like, well, if I just eat whatever I want, I'm going to gain so much weight. And I just want to debunk that right now. Um, yeah, that's it's possible in the beginning that that might happen. You might be eating a lot more because you're like, wow, it's a free for all. But eventually when your brain learns that these things are off, everything is on limits, like you can have anything you want, the brain is naturally going to not restrict those things and they're going to become less desirable. So then you're going to be get more in tune with what does your body need instead of like, what does my brain think it thinks it needs or wants? Oh my God. Yeah. I think we should talk about that. Like strengthening your intuition. What are some ways or very simple action items that people can do to do this? So the first thing I would do, and this actually has nothing to do with me, but I, to strengthen my intuition, I hired like an energy healer, a a mindset coach around there. And she really helped me strengthen my intuition. So I do believe that there's an energetic component to this that is worth investing in for sure. Because if you've gone so far off, if you're at a point where you are so disconnected with your hunger cues, or you're so disconnected with the health of your body and the state of your mind, it's, you're going to need some guidance for how to get there. But if let's, if, we'll talk about my expertise here. So one of the things that you can do and one of the things I recommend is just trying like an intermittent fasting practice. I do not recommend you try like a 20 hour fast and a four hour eating window. Like I don't want you to put numbers around it because again, that's just a diet and that doesn't work. What I want you to do is start pushing back your meals and it's easiest, easiest with breakfast just to get a sense of what does hunger actually feel like? It takes a really long time to actually feel hunger. Like you can go three days without eating, if not more. Your body has a lot of stores on it and not just your body, like everybody's body has a lot of stores. We eat a lot, right? And I'm not doing this or I'm not suggesting this so that people will starve themselves. But what I need people to do is really start to get in tune with what does hunger actually even feel like? And to do that, we need to stop subscribing to this three meals a day thing. Like who the fuck even came up with that? You know who came up with breakfast? Breakfast is the most important meal of the day. The, the cereal company, this was a marketing scheme. So breakfast is like the first meal that you eat is, is very important that it's balanced. It doesn't matter what time that is. So I like to help my clients get in touch with their hunger cues so they can understand, okay, this is real hunger and this is not. Another way to do that is to um, do the broccoli test. So if you're hungry for something very specific, it's not real hunger. So if you're like, oh, I just want some chips or some ice cream, or even if you're like, I just want this thing and hummus, but you're looking in your cupboard and you're like, oh, I don't want any of that. That's not real hunger. Real hunger is like you'd eat fucking anything. So the broccoli test is like, if I would eat steamed broccoli with no salt or anything on it, would would that, would that I do that? And if the answer is yes, then you're probably hungry. Just eat. If the answer is no, then just wait until you are hungry. What about, I feel like we've been talking about a lot from the perspective of maybe like losing weight or, you know, maybe thinking you're eating too much or binge eating. But what about like you were just saying, if someone actually is starving themselves and is almost scared of food, how do you deal with clients on that perspective? From that perspective, we do a lot of exposure therapy. So exposure therapy is a therapy where you basically expose yourself. It's You expose yourself to the thing you're phobic of. Because with behavioral psychology, there are a lot of these feedback loops. So for example, if let's say you got bit by a dog at a dog park, if you continue to avoid that dog park, you're always going to be afraid of dogs, right? You're not actually getting over that fear. So it's the same thing with people. I actually very rarely work with people who are like anorexic anymore. I I really just, my, my behavior, my uh, practices really moved to binge eating disorder and food addiction. But um, there's even with binge eating disorder and food addiction, there's a lot of fear around foods that are considered unhealthy. So with those, we do exposure therapy. 
And a lot of the time with my clients, I'm educating them on how the body works. Like if you eat something that is considered unhealthy, you're not going to gain weight. It takes so long to actually build a new cell out of adipose tissue. Your brain uses like 40% of the calories that you eat during the day. That's just thinking power alone. So you are constantly, you're like, you're a fat burning machine. The problem is we have negative ideas about who we are and negative ideas about what we're eating. So it makes food very scary. And then anything that we eat, we're like, oh, I shouldn't be eating anything. And then we just gain that weight because of our mindset, right? So with clients that are on the other end of the spectrum where they're afraid to eat certain things, we do a lot of exposure therapy where I'm, I'm asking them to introduce these foods. And I'm saying, I'm taking them through, this is what's happening in your body when you're eating these foods. Like your body's designed to digest them is this meal going to matter in one year from now? Because if it's not, then fucking forget about it. Like, it doesn't matter. That's so true. Something I don't think we've covered, which I feel like in my life has played a huge role, is stress. Like, can we talk yeah. about stress and the the role it plays in our health? Oh, God, yeah. So stress in a child's brain, from a child, if there's stress or high cortisol in a child's environment – high cortisol in the developing brain. So we have the prefrontal cortex, which is kind of what makes us human beings. Um, other than that, it's primitive brain. So the prefrontal cortex is where we have all the critical thinking and imp impulse control and that kind of thing. So if there's high stress in a child's environment, high cortisol is going to prevent the um, development of the endorphin system. Now, the endorphin system is where we release things like serotonin, and dopamine, oxytocin, and endorphins, right? Endorphins make us feel this. We're talking about sati satiation, happiness, pleasure, and so if there's high cortisol in a child's environment, then basically the child is not going to be able to release these things naturally on its own. So it's going to start to search for substances or search for external validation to help them release those chemicals. This is why with me, when I first tried drugs, I was like, holy fuck, I found this like sense of relief I've never felt before because obviously the amount of dopamine you release from like cocaine is very different than from food. But for my whole childhood, there was so much stress in my environment about the way that I looked and whether it was performing or not that I wasn't able to actually release things like serotonin and dopamine naturally on my own. So I, I turned to food to self-soothe. And then when I tried drugs, I was like, well, this is way better. So now let's move to an adult's brain. So if whether or not you had childhood trauma, that's a factor. And it happens in most people, especially in this day and age. Now in an adult's brain, the stress response comes from this olive size part of the brain called the amygdala. The amygdala is in the primitive brain and it regulates our stress response. So when the fight or flight is, is heightened, so the fight or flight is our, is our run from danger. The fight or flight is our stress response. The human body or human beings have, it takes millions of years for evolution, right? So the human body is still really in the same body as it was 300,000 years ago, but the human brain is evolved very quickly. So when we have the stress response heightened 300,000 years ago, that would be in the face of danger. It would be, we're running from a predator. So that's a literal threat to our survival. Now, fast forward to these times when stress is all the time, literally all the time, our stress response is, is firing, but the body doesn't know the difference between I'm running from a bear or financial stress or emotional stress. It just sees stress. It just sees threat to my survival, high cortisol, fight or flight reaction. So when the amygdala is firing all the time and it's like stress, 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 we have fight or flight and rest and digest. So fight or flight is a stress response. Rest and digest is the opposite of that. So one very easy way to turn off the stress response is to eat. You put, you force yourself in digest mode, right? So that this is how stress eating even happens. People feel stress and they eat in response to that to turn off that stress response. And then you develop a very strong connection. The next time your brain feels stressed, because the brain never likes to feel stressed. The brain doesn't want to be in a, in a threat to its survival. The brain wants to survive. 
we're, de- we're designed to survive. So every time we feel stress, we are going to know intuitively, I can just eat and turn the stress response off temporarily, of course. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, the stress eating thing I can definitely relate to because it feels like it is res- resolving something. It's like, oh my God, I'm just stressed. I need yeah. to like grab something and just like shove it in my mouth. And so explaining yeah. the science behind it is so helpful. And it's also because the thing that you're eating is going to help to produce endorphins like dopamine, which is going to turn off that stress response as well. Wow. This is all fascinating. I feel like we could talk forever, but I (laughs) want to end on something that I'm dying to know from you is what are three of the biggest myths that you see in the health and wellness industry that we can debunk right now? The first one would be calories in and calories out. So not all calories made equal. Um, I already gave the example of the way that your thoughts play into this. So if two people could be eating the same thing that is healthy or unhealthy and they might digest it or that it might affect their body in very different ways. Calories in and calories out works for one specific case and it doesn't work for any other reason. And so calories in and calories, calories, counting calories works for if you want to gain weight. It works very well for understanding how to gain weight. So I used to be a sports nutritionist. And when I was helping one of my clients gain like 30 pounds of muscle, so he could be at a certain, he was a rep hockey player, so he could like be in a certain age group. It was very easy to do that by counting calories. But we know now because there's so many different components to what a calorie is even made up of that a calorie is not a calorie. It's not equal. So I think that that's probably the first myth. The second myth is that diets work. Diets do not work. Going on a diet means that there's an expiry date. So with every diet, first of all, the dieting industry is a multi-billion dollar industry, right? So if dieting worked, obesity rates should not be going up, but they are. They're going up at a rapid pace. And like, I don't think you can find one obese person that hasn't been on a diet at one point in their life. So diets just, they straight up do not work. They're very temporary. And so I think the first one would be calories in and calories out. The second is dieting and if diets are effective or not. The third one would be, yeah, I guess I just think that you don't really have to exercise as hard as you think you do. You just need to move your body. So human beings are bipedal. We're bipedal human beings. So we are designed to walk. Walking is probably the best thing that you can do for yourself. We are not designed for 45-minute high-intensity boot camps. That's a stress for the environment, right? Like that. That is that is in the same way a fight-or-flight response. It's stressful for the body. The reason why we've had to resort to that is because our entire lives are sedentary. So you want to build a life where you can be walking and moving as much as possible and really honoring the body in the way that it was designed because that's when you're going to be healthiest. I literally just threw up prayer hands in our video when you were talking <laughs> about that because I think that's what changed for me was I used to do the crazy boot camps like six in the morning and I, I don't know why this never clicked of like going into a dark room with laser beam lights with music at like volume <laughs> 1000. The coach is like yelling at you in the microphone, giving no direction. You're switching so fast. I remember being like, this is a crazy workout, but because of the way they've built it, and I'm sure there's a whole neuroscience piece to this with the the names on the wall, you know, and you're like seeing your name go up and you're uh-huh. breaking those zones and all these things. Of course, you get addicted to like being the best in class. I know we're a competitive species. So we're like, I'm going to go back and continue to see that improvement. But for some reason, I never, I thought I was going to be in the best shape of my life from doing these crazy high intensity workouts and nothing ever changed. If anything, my body stayed the exact same and it never made sense to me until I learned about stress. And I was like, it seems like my body is just constantly holding on to something because it's like you're going to like a war zone every day as a workout. No wonder you're not seeing any changes. 
right? And then again, stress is a threat to the survival. So the body's natural response to that is like, let's hold on to weight because we're going to die and we want to protect ourselves. Which so, is then why I think yeah. like talking about Australia, doing like these beach walks, things were just like, it was almost like my body was like, finally, we're in a quiet beachy scene, like the salt, the sea salt, the the sun, like just relaxing. And that's when my body changed. And I almost had to go through all that to to show myself, yeah, I don't need to be working out two hours a day to see results. Like, of course, we're also not saying like, just let it all fly and see what happens. It's like, yeah, no, you do need to move. Let's like look at your nutrition. But I don't think it's as hard as we've made it seem because that's that was my story for most of my 20s was losing weight and becoming healthy is going to be the hardest thing I'm ever going to do in my life. Like, it's just going to be so hard to get in shape. It's going to be so hard to clear my skin. It's going to be it's this whole dramatic story. And truly through people like you and your work, I've started to truly believe it's not as hard as we make it seem. No, because the body, once it feels safe, it'll just let go of what it doesn't need because it's not adaptive to hold on to it. So you got to find that safe place. I love that. Well, I have one final question that I ask all my guests and <laughs> this podcast is called In My Non-Expert Opinion. And clearly you are an expert in everything, health, wellness, nutrition, neuroscience. I mean, I love it. But what is something you're not an expert in that you wish you were? That is a really good question. It is completely unrelated to health and nutrition. I've always really loved fashion. And I've always wanted to be more into the fashion scene. So I wish that I was more of an expert in Vogue and like fashion stuff. But uh, yeah, that's, that's probably, it was probably that. Oh, I love that. Maybe, <laughs> maybe in the future, I feel like these days, everybody can be anything they want. So I'm like, who knows? Maybe you'll be like a nutritionist slash stylist in the near future. <laughs> we never know. Yeah, we never know. It's true. I love it. <laughs> Well, clearly people are going to want to work with you after this. So what are some programs or offers that you have going on right now and how can people engage with your work? Yeah. So the easiest thing to do would be to head to my website and book a free consultation. I will never, ever work with you if I can't help you. It just, it's not beneficial to either of us. Right. And and I'm pretty good at detecting that from a consultation. So I, you, it's always going to be free for me to understand what the root causes are. So you can always book a free consultation. I offer programs. So Chelsea, you're in one of my programs. So uh, Chelsea's in a program where we're meeting kind of once a month for four months. And this is a program where you need less support with the mindset stuff. Typically, that program is mainly based for people who need to go through functional detoxes, or I'm trying to rebalance like certain deficiencies in the body. Then we have my more structured programs, which are weekly or biweekly on a weekly or biweekly basis. And this is like my signature program. It's been overseen by multiple medical professionals. It's an amazing program. It takes you through all of the mindset stuff with food, as well as um, all of the nutritional aspect, the neuroscience, everything kind of coming together. So uh, yeah, I would just book a consultation and we can see where you fit on all of that. And I just released a podcast, which is very new for me. So you can find me there. It's called Head to Heal. And where else can you find me? On, on Instagram. I'm most active on Instagram. I'm not a very techie person, so I don't have multiple social media stuff. So Instagram is my only really outlet there. It's so funny, though, when people say they're not techie, because then I see you have like videos, graphics, your podcasts. I'm like, okay, you clearly have some technical skills with how much you have going on. I love it. Thank you. I'm, I'm very proud of myself, I will say, as we've come to this virtual world. I've made a lot of progress this year, so I will I will give myself that for sure. Yes, exactly. Going, bringing it all, for, all full circle, giving yourself the credit you deserve is like That's the right. theme of this. I love it. Yes. Thank you so much for coming on, Jordana. 
Thank you so much for having me, Chelsea.